0: Well, let's stand together this morning and we're going to read uh, just a few verses. Um, It's not a Christmas sermon. It does have the word joy in it, though, so that might tie us in. Um, We're back in the book of Acts, and uh, I trust this will be helpful to us because it is God's word and it's always relevant. We just need to see how and why it's relevant for us today. So, Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Lord, we ask for your will to be done this morning in us. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow us, Lord, to give freedom to your Holy Spirit, uh, molding and shaping us, Lord, through the preaching of your word. Lord, so that all of us here today can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, According to a Christian missions organization called Open Doors, they're engaged in research about the health of the church worldwide. They say that more than 340 million uh, Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. And then they uh, they say, of that number, 309 million suffer very high or extreme levels of persecution. That's one in eight worldwide, one in 12 in Latin America, one in six in Africa, and two out of five in Asia. So if our church were a sample of that study, let's just say we, we took a 100 of us, that would be 12 out of a hundred of us, would be experiencing very high or extreme levels of persecution. Raise your hands if that's you. (laughs) Yeah, it's not happening to us, but it is happening to the church. And we may not understand it or experience it personally, but it is happening. In a study taken from October 2020 to September 2021, the researchers found that 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 Christians were unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. And 1,710 Christians were abducted for faith-related reasons. So on average, every day, 13 Christians are killed killed for their faith, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned, and five Christians are abducted for faith-related reasons. The top 10 countries that are antagonistic toward Christianity, based on their studies, going from 10th to the 1st, India, Nigeria, Iran, Yemen, Eritrea, Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Afghanistan, North Korea. I think 8 out of 10 of those are Islamic ruled. And there's a significant trend that took place during that time frame, October 2020, September 2021, and that is that during that season of COVID-19, COVID-19 has has become a catalyst for religious persecution. Really on three levels. One, relief discrimination. We're not going to give it to the Christians. We're going to give it to these other people that are just like us. Forced conversion so that you can get the medication you need. And then justification for the increasing of surveillance and censorship because of COVID-19. Now, we're kind of experiencing some of that a little bit here. You know, you got to check in here, you got to check in there. But this is all a means by which the world now is taking advantage of the circumstances to bring about more persecution of Christians. But I have a question. Is persecution an evil that we should avoid as Christians? Well, I think all of us would say, on one hand, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we, we want to say, okay, come on, God, bring it on. No, I don't think that's our attitude at all. I think our attitude is we just want to live our lives for the Lord. We, we want to raise our families. We want to go to work. We want to see our kids grow up. We want to see them get married and have grandchildren and, and just be well-placed and serve society and serve the Lord. We just want to get on with our lives, right? That's just normal. It's natural. But also the answer to that question is no. We shouldn't avoid persecution. Why? Well, the the second century church father, Tertullian, said this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he was saying is that the gospel is often, not always, but often planted through the evil act of persecution. There's a Bulgarian by the name of Christoph Kulichev. And he was arrested and put in prison. His crime was that he got up on a Sunday morning to preach to his congregation when the government of that country had told him he could no longer pastor that church. They're going to put in another pastor. And he went to the trial. Of course, it was a farce, but he was put in jail then for eight months for simply preaching. And during his time in prison, he made Christ known in every way he could. And when he got out, this is what he said. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. Now, friends, you have to have a gospel-oriented perspective on life To make that kind of statement. See Jesus had prepared his disciples. For the inevitability of persecution. Luke chapter 21 verses 12 and 13 say this. But before all this they will lay their hands on you. And persecute you. Delivering you up in the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors. For my name's sake. This will be your opportunity To bear witness. and the modern day church in America, so much of it is caught up with this distorted health, wealth, and prosperity gospel for those who convert to, to Christianity. It just betrays what Jesus actually says in his word. Here we have John 15, beginning at verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. because they do not know him who sent me. Now, as we turn to our text, you will have noted, hopefully, that it is full of persecution. (laughs) But what Luke wants us to see is this, that God uses persecution to be the vehicle for gospel witness. Now, this text is a hinge text. It moves us from Jerusalem into this new territory. Remember Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. So we're now moving from Jerusalem in this text into the region of Judea, Samaria. It's a summary text giving just a few short verses about what happened over a, a period of time. It's a transition text. Luke transitions from the martyrdom of Stephen the introduction of Saul, who will become Paul, and then the ministry here of Philip. So it's so a wonderful little text that we can just breeze by real fast, and yet it's full of wonderful gospel teaching that will encourage and help us to do what God has called us to do. So with that in mind, with the fact that God uses persecution to be the vehicle for the gospel, for gospel witness, let's jump in now in verses 1 and 3 and talk about darkness. And Saul approved of his execution. With the death of Stephen, a time of darkness now descends on this new church in Jerusalem. And we're going to look now at this darkness through three different windows, three different scenes were given here by Luke to help us understand what is taking place in the darkness. First of all, notice there's great persecution. Verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Now, the word persecution, it's a word that refers to a program or a process designed to harass and oppress someone. But this was a great or a mega persecution. It was severe uh, uh, in its form, in, in, its, in, its, in its manner. In other words, the persecution went beyond the arrests and the interrogations that had happened previous to this. Now this was uh, intensified. And what began with Stephen now continues over some time with the rest of the church. And this particular uh, persecution was directed not just at individuals, but the entire congregation, the ecclesia, we're told there, of believers living in Jerusalem. Luke uses the word all, hyperbolically, to describe how widespread the persecution was. And verse 3 suggests that the persecution went on for some time. Not all the believers left at once. They kind of trickled out, but they were were scattered. They were were, pushed out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that was taking place there. And so the congregation was broken up, and they all kind of went in various random directions from Jerusalem. And as they left Jerusalem, in a scattered fashion, they sought refuge in the towns and the villages of the countryside of Judea and Samaria. There was a great persecution. But notice also what we find in verse 2 is that there was a great lamentation. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Stephen, who was that first Christian martyr, he receives The proper burial that he is due. He's honored for his clear and bold faithfulness to the gospel. Get this. He is not blamed for the ongoing persecution. There's always going to be someone that's going to say something like, why did that Christian leader say those things? Why did he have to speak God's truth in that context? Doesn't he see how this will all affect the church? Because of his words and actions, now the whole city is against us. Families are being broken apart. Homes are being uh, being lost. Children are being separated from their parents. And Christians are now having to live like refugees. Why don't these preachers think before they speak? it's always going to be someone who says something like that not in this situation they honor the life of stephen the faithfulness of stephen in a proper burial these are pious men an unspecified number of pious men they bury him and they make a great lament and the picture there typically of someone beating their breasts as well as weeping. Now, they're doing this in a defiant manner because according to the Jewish law at that particular time, not biblical law, but added Jewish law, you were permitted to bury someone who had been stoned. But you were not allowed to lament them. So their act is both defiant and a statement of the righteousness of this man. And culturally, this would go on for up to, you know, 30 to something, 70 days. So this was a long lament. It was a sad time. It was a time of persecution, but it was a time where the body of Christ was lamenting the loss of this man, who must have been well recognized by that community. Now, these devout men, they're not consumed with stuff and popularity and status. They're not consumed with what the society around them was saying. No, as followers of Christ, they think little about life the, the way the world does, but they, they think about life the way Jesus thinks about life. They let good and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. So there's great persecution. Great lamentation. Third, great ravaging. Look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house to house. He dragged men and women and committed uh, them to prison. Saul watched Stephen die. And he agreed with his death. And now he takes personal action against the church. We find here this word ravage. It describes someone who died damages or spoils something. And the tense of the word means this was happening. This was ongoing. This is repeated activity. So Saul is either trying to destroy or seeking to damage Christians and their witness. And then we're told how this is taking place, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, putting them in jail. This was a deliberate rooting out of the followers of Christ. There was no kind of keeping your Christianity quiet and just kind of going on with life. No, no, no. You had to acknowledge, you had to identify that you were a Christian. There was, uh, he was entering house after house questioning the inhabitants and, and rooting out their Christian allegiance. I, what comes to my mind is, is the, the, you know, the Nazis going door to door looking for Jews. We have that kind of picture in our mind because we've seen movies and stuff like that. This is what's happened. They're going in. They're fighting the Christians. They're dragging them out, putting them in prison. What happens in those contexts is people lose their homes. They lose their properties, and they're stuck in jail because this is a mass form of persecution. Can you imagine persecution coming to the Bay Area? Government authorities are forcing the doors of homes and interrogating the inhabitants and saying, are you a Christian? Do you know of any Christians? Are your parents Christians? And those found to be followers of Christ are dragged out of their houses without respect, without dignity. They're thrown into prison, having their homes ransacked, their valuables stolen, their belongings destroyed, and even their houses likely given over to others some out of fear who have been part of the church will deny their faith. They will. Or they will convert to whatever the acceptable orthodoxy of that age might be simply to avoid suffering. I understand that. Yeah, I can have compassion for the, for, for, you know, the, the fear of what's going to happen to me and my children and stuff like that. Maybe I'll just kind of convert over so that I don't suffer that way. Well, because of great, the great persecution, those Christians who were able to flee are scattered all over California, into the countryside, into the valley, into the Sierra Mountains, even into Oregon, Nevada, and Arizona. My friends, don't think that it can't happen or that it won't happen because this kind of thing has happened countless times in the history of the church. Christian communities run over, rooted out by people who are opposed to their faith. And friends, Christianity, because it stands on the unchanging gospel, will be offensive to many. And today, just an offense Is considered hateful. I appreciate what John Piper says in capturing this whole idea. He says this If you cherish chastity, your life will be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you pursue self control, your life will indict excess eating. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you will throw callousness into sharp relief. If you are earnest, you will make the flippant look flippant instead of clever. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. Simply because you're trying to live life as a Christian. With Christian principles and Christian ideologies. You will be an offense. And the world loves its darkness. And seeks to put down any voices that expose the wickedness of that darkness. So friends, there's this... There's this darkness. So how do we go from the darkness of persecution in verses 1 through 3 to the the, the the joy in the city of verse 8? How do we get from persecution to joy? And friends, it's a really wonderful answer, but it's a reality because persecution is real and joy is real, but there's a way to get there, and it's a biblical way to get there. The answer to that question is light light comes into darkness it's the light of the gospel as God's children are scattered they take the light of the gospel with them out of the darkness of persecution comes the light of the gospel and it's proclamation that leads to great joy in the city you see that and there's three ingredients to the light of the gospel that we're going to find here. The ministry of the word, the attentiveness of the crowds, and the effectiveness of the signs. First of all, the ministry of the word. Luke identifies what the scattered people are doing in general. And then he's going to focus in on Philip, the deacon here, to see what he's doing in particular. First of all, we find people preaching. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, just think about this. You're being persecuted. You're being run out of town. You're going into different places. You're probably not thinking, okay, I'm running into town here. I'm going to start preaching the word. That's probably not what you're thinking, right? So just be mindful here. What's being talked about here isn't so much what I'm doing this morning. It's really just wherever, wherever they went... They were testifying. Well, why are you running? Well, let me tell you why we're running. We're being persecuted. Well, why are you being persecuted? Well, because we follow Jesus Christ. Well, who's this Jesus Christ? Uh, he's the Messiah who came. And he came as a little baby and he went to a cross and he died on that cross for our sins. And Religious leadership, they didn't like it. And they had him crucified, but three days later, he rose from the tomb, and he's he's given us life, and the Holy Spirit's been poured out. And this is what they were doing. Wherever they went, they took with them this gospel witness. Now, they may have been running to family or friends that lived in various places. They may have been interacting with people who were strangers. But hear this, the effect of persecution in this situation rather than stopping the spread of Christianity was providing a way to spread the gospel message. This is all part of God's sovereignty. This is all part of his providence. The seed of the gospel came as a result of the harshness of persecution. Friends, that smacks against American Christianity, doesn't it? If I'm going to be a follower of Christ, that means I have to be comfortable. I have to have all my ducks in a row. I have to, have to live a good life. I have to have a healthy bank account. No, here you know, we have the, you know, the example that says, that's not always going to be the case. And you can't hold that up and worship that because persecution can come and it can come fast. And when it does, guess what? God is still seated on his throne. And you can be sure He's at work. So light, in particular, to the ministry of the word and people preaching. But then we have Philip, in particular, proclaiming. We find in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ, the Messiah. Now, the witness from Jerusalem was spilling over into Judea and into Samaria. And Philip here, we're told, goes down to the city of Samaria. It's three days journey. It's about 37 miles or so. Thus, we have now in the book of Acts, the beginning of Philip's preaching ministry, which will continue through the end of chapter eight. And of course, he was also one who was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, chosen to be one of these Deacons, a little side here. To be a deacon doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to teach or preach God's word. all right. But that certainly is a qualification for eldership. Back to our story here, though. We have to put all of this in perspective because Jerusalem was to Samaria, or maybe I put it this way, Samaria was to Jerusalem what Gaza and the West Bank are today to a modern-day Jew. You just don't go there. These are your enemies. If you go there, you're not welcome. Now, why is that true? Why is it that the Samaritans were not popular among the Jews? Well, there's a number of reasons. 700 years before this occasion, Samaria had been part of that united kingdom where it was ruled by David and Solomon. Those were the glory days of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel ruling the known world. But in the eyes of the Jews, all that came crashing down as a result of the rebellion of a man by the name of Jeroboam. And he created a breakaway northern state. And ultimately... King Omri came and he purchased a hill and on that hill he built a city, the hill of Samaria. He founded that city of Samaria, which had a rival temple and a rival religious system. It looked so much like Old Testament worship of Yahweh, but it wasn't. And then what you had is you had the invasion of Samaria and those who came and took Samaria, rather than kind of sending them other places. They brought people from all around the world and deposited them in that territory. So Samaria became this, this place where all sorts of different ethnic groups were, were gathered, all sorts of different religious groups were, were present. And it became a hodgepodge, a melting pot of religious practice and superstition. This was a syncretistic religion, which simply is a mix of this and that and something else. In other words, a religious and cultural potpourri. William Taylor says it well. Ethnic cleansing and religious blending left Samaria a mixed race with a mongrel religion. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. So when the Jews would think about Samaria, Samaria, they didn't think well of them because in Samaria, what had began, I want to say, as a religion that was close to the Jewish religion of the Old Testament had been overrun, twisted and accommodated to fit the culture and religion of the various nations now who are part of that country. It may have had the form of that religion, but it didn't have its substance at all. Dare I say it, it's a reflection of the cultural and religious potpourri that we have here in the San Francisco Bay Area. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, something else. We'll just kind of throw it in the mix there, but still call it Christianity. When it's not. So it's no surprise then that these Jews were despised for being unfaithful and a mixed ancestry. They were half Jew, half Gentile, and they were treated as defecting half-breeds. That's why John, in his gospel, just says, as an aside, they, the Jews, had no dealings with Samaritans. In summary, you might want to say it this way. The Samaritans were richly impure, racially mixed, and religiously unclean. And Philip now, this first follower of Christ, to go into this Gentile territory, he comes now to this place called Samaria that should be their enemy. That would be hardened to anything that they would bring. But he comes taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, it's worth us noting here that through persecution, our worst enemies can become our best friends. And some of them are mentioned here, right? Saul, who is ravaging the church, would eventually be the Apostle Paul, who'd be the champion for the church. The Samaritans who were once in conflict with the Jews are now, as we'll see, receiving the good news of Jesus Christ with great joy. And persecution has a unique way of making friends in the most unlikely of places. The ministry of the word the people, through Philip. Secondly, the attentiveness of the crowds. Now, friends, this is absolutely remarkable. Not only does God work providentially through the faithful witness of the followers in general, and, and Philip's proclamation in particular, God has been at work preparing the hearts of these Samaritan hearers. As Philip goes into Samaria preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has been at work preparing the soil of the hearts of all those who would be listening. And what appears to be a hard, despised, offensive group of people, they're now putty in the hands of God. Philip comes proclaiming the truth and the crowds with one accord paid attention. The expression paid attention here is imperfect in the Greek, which simply means this, that Peter proclaimed many times and the people listened many times. It was repeated, repeated, repeated. In other words, the, these Samaritans are hungry for what Philip is sharing about the gospel. Now, these are their enemies. These are the people that have this distorted view of God. And yet God has been at work preparing them for this gospel message. Now friends, this is God working ahead of our gospel witness, preparing the soil of the heart to receive the seed of the gospel. And friends, this is so important for all of us to remember. That person whom you think would never give the gospel of Jesus Christ the time of day, may very well be prepared, be prepared by God to actually listen and hear what it is you're saying. And they, they might respond that week. They might respond that month. It might be the next year. Or you may not actually see how the, the word of God is germinating in their hearts. You see, it's not our job to somehow germinate the seed in the heart. That's God's doing. Our job is to scatter the seed. And just the, the language that's used here, isn't interesting, right? The people are scattered. <laughs> hmm, didn't Jesus talk about someone, there's a sower going out and scattering the seed, and the seed fell on different kinds of soils. That's exactly what's happening here. But the perceived hard soil has been broken up by the mighty hand of God, preparing it for gospel germination. And we must believe that God goes before us, friends, and doing the work of heart preparation your neighbor, your boss, your friend, your coworker, your family member it is God who softens their heart for your gospel witness. It's not your job to convince someone of the gospel. I'm not saying you don't persuade, but it's God who prepares the heart to receive that gospel seed. That's encouraging, isn't it? So we see the ministry of the word, the attentiveness of the crowds, which of course God is doing. And third, the effectiveness of the signs. This one might get you to scratch your head a little bit here, right? For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. The signs that that accompanied the ministry of the word helped to reinforce or validate or authenticate the message that was being preached. They were not the end in and of themselves. They were there to authenticate the genuine nature of this gospel message. And Luke identifies here two such activities. Many were delivered from demon possession. They came out shrieking loudly. In other words, you couldn't miss this. Yeah! what it was like, right? I mean, people around and say, what happened there? That person had a demon. And it's coming out. Whoa. They did, didn't they? We, and, and it's like people would know that. And many were healed, paralyzed, lame, Idea of lame is they're lame from birth. That is why they saw and what they heard, friends. It was evident to them that these were signs that authenticated that Philip had something important to say, and we better listen to it. Now, God hasn't continued the ministry of healing in this form beyond the first generation of Christians. We pray for healing; God does heal, but not necessarily as a gift that is being exercised by an individual. But there are ways that Christians can authenticate and validate and reinforce the message of the gospel. So here are just a few that came to my mind. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just to illustrate to you how we can, by our very lives, give signs that authenticate the gospel. Number one, when you're evidencing joy in the midst of your suffering. The world looks on and they learn that your life is not anchored Into the here and now. And don't get me wrong. It's not that there aren't lots of things that you love about the here and now. Your family, your friends. But they realize that you are rooted in Christ. And that your future is that hope you have of heaven. And that you're trusting in your sovereign God for wisdom and for strength. Friends, that is authentication. Lifestyle. Reinforces the gospel that you believe. Secondly, when you treat your spouse with a true mutual joy and respect and love, that's not the norm in society today. But we who are in Christ, although we may have many struggles in our marriages, and we do, because we're in Christ and because we've made commitments before God and before men. We work through those things and we trust God to give us wisdom and counsel and guidance. And so we don't just say, I'm going to throw in the towel. We work hard. The world looks on and say, man, how can you endure all that? It's because of Christ. When you show respect for your employer, boy, today the world is, is just so free and liberal with their complaining and about their employer and how they treat them and the things that they do. And there may be elements of truth, but what happens is it spills over into words and actions of disrespect and things that we as Christians should not be a part of. And as a Christian, you can show respect and you can, you can bring a concern in such a way that is considerate of that, that employer but at the same time bring up the issues that need to be brought up. Or how you treat the employees that are underneath you. Some might say, I don't like what those Christians teach. Some of their doctrine or ethical positions rub me wrong. But if I have to work for somebody, I sure hope it's a Christian. You would hope that if you're an employer, that's what your employees are saying about you. And there may be all sorts of reasons why they wouldn't. But we hope that that would be a reflection of the fact that Christ is in you and that you want to treat them well. You want to treat them with care. You're interested in them. They're not just a a means to an end. They're people who have lives and families and they're trying to survive here in the Bay Area. Here's the last one. When you care for your fellow Christian with the warmth of the brother or sister, coming to their aid, giving of your resources, helping them when they are in need. This is what Jesus said, right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but you see how the things that we do, the way we say certain things, the way we behave, these are all activities that authenticate a genuine gospel that reinforce the truth of, of what this gospel is, is about. I think sometimes the world looks at Christians and they think they're, they're all a bunch of right-wing Republicans who get angry because they want to homeschool their kids. Or something like that, right? They have no idea because they won't darken the door of a church because we talked about that last week. They don't want to be under the oppression of God. They have this totally distorted view of what Christianity is about. And God is sending you out to change that opinion. But not just to to the opinion, but your life is an example. Say, well, okay, they might be the exception to the rule. Hopefully you're the standard for the rule. And friends, Jesus calls us to be salt and light in a perverse and wicked generation. Here we see how the gospel witness continues to spread from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Samaria. And how God has already been at work preparing the hearts to receive his truth. As well as the signs that authenticate the message of that gospel. And God continues to call us to the same truths. To be his witnesses. To trust his sovereign work. To live lives that authenticate the genuineness of the gospel we proclaim. Now, Just as a caveat here though. There is nothing more destructive to a gospel witness than a life that is being lived in a completely different manner that betrays the gospel that you say you believe in. We're called to live holy lives, yes, because we have a holy God, but God also, by living those holy lives, wants those lives to be lights that shine the beauty and the glory of the gospel and reflect. His nature. So friends, what what bridges darkness and joy is this light. The ministry of the word, God's sovereign work in the hearts of people that that we don't control, we pray for it. God does it. But we also have a, a responsibility to bring authenticating behaviors and words and interaction with those people around us. God uses all that as we are his channels for gospel ministry. So let's now move in from darkness to light now to joy, because this is the result of all that. I mean, verse 8, what a a wonderful verse, right? So there was much joy in that city. I mean, could you imagine that God was writing about San Lorenzo, Castro Valley, or Oakland, or the Bay Area, saying, so there was much joy in that city. I mean, just imagine that. But this is the fruit. It's the fruit of persecution. (laughs) It's the fruit of gospel witness that comes as a result of that persecution. Now, the people of Samaria, having experienced and authenticating signs and wonders, are drawn to Philip's message, and they now respond with joy. And it's helpful to note that it is the -the run-of-the-mill follower of Christ, as well as the respected deacon, Philip, who are taking the gospel to the peoples of Judea and Samaria. You get that. It says in the text earlier on, while the apostles remained in Jerusalem, the apostles stayed. And friends, we, we must get out of our mind, and I don't think it's an issue here at Gateway, but it's worth at least saying here that some people have this idea that all gospel ministry and it should only be done by formal church leaders. So the pastors and the elders, they are the church's evangelists. Well, no, this, this text is telling us, no, 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 no. God's people all have this wonderful responsibility to be witnesses wherever they go. I don't take anything away from pastor, teachers, or elders. We're, we're all part of that. We're all part of that mix. We're all responsible to do that. And man, did they not do that here? Certainly Philip does. Friends, we're all, in a sense, run-of-the-mill Christians that God is working his will through. Now, truth be told, we're all supposed to be evangelists. Now, you can be a good evangelist, looking and anticipating opportunities to authenticate your gospel witness. You can be a passive evangelist, waiting for God to make it obvious and clear so that you can give testimony to Christ. You can be a disobedient evangelist by keeping your mouth shut. But get this, you're an evangelist. Just like we say, you're a counselor. You're going to give some advice, right? You're going to say something to, to help people. Well, you're an evangelist. What kind of evangelist are you? When God's people take on their God-given responsibility to testify their faith by living authentic lives, there will be much joy in the city. We, and we in a sense, do our part. God is going to be the one who does the rest. My Friends, this, this is a wonderful picture. Because what it does is it takes a little bit of the, I shouldn't say a little bit, a lot of the responsibility off of our shoulders We are simply witnesses. To to be a witness is to testify of something that has happened. You want to know what happened? We're getting run out of the city. Why are you getting run out of the city? Well, because we're being persecuted. Why are you getting persecuted? Well, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Oh, really? Explain that a little bit more. I mean, it's not that difficult. We're witnesses. And we spread the good news of the gospel but it is God who works in the heart. So God is at work. We just testify. And wonderfully, at times, we get to experience the joy of seeing the results of that. Now I want to draw attention now as we close to three concluding thoughts drawn out of this text. Number one, don't give in. Don't give in. You can be sure that if you are a true follower of Christ, you will face some level of persecution in your life. It might be some physical kind of persecution against your body, might put your life in danger. It could be a financial kind of persecution when you're not allowed to maybe purchase stuff at the grocery store. That could be coming, who knows? It might be a religious kind of persecution where you're being mistreated simply because you hold to the basic orthodox teachings of the church. And by that, I am not talking about strange te- teachings. I'm talking about Christianity 101 kind of teachings, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the virgin birth, the inspiration and sufficiency of the scriptures. That there are only two genders, male and female, the unique role of men and women that The fact that we're all sinners, the gospel truth that Jesus died as your sacrifice to pay for your sins, that honesty and integrity should flow out of your life, and so on. These are all Christianity 101 issues. But too often, the world around us doesn't want to be held to those truths. It mocks them as being foolish. And the world puts pressure on the Christian to abandon their foolish and ignorant faith. And I'm saying here, don't give into that. You are going to live under pressure, but don't give into it. And that's why, unsurprisingly, the apostle Paul anticipates this tendency by saying, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the t- by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. I love J.B. Phillips' translation here. He fleshes this out in a way that really helps us. He says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Isn't that what's happening? Well, I, this is how I'm supposed to be as a Christian. And the world say, Oh, you don't want to do that because you're not going to be like, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. Squeeze, squeeze. And Christ is saying, trust me, stay true. Don't give in. And it continues on, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of maturity. Friends, don't give in to the pressure of persecution. Instead, see it as the means by which God is growing you toward maturity in Christ. We don't have to panic if we're persecuted. We say, okay, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? (laughs) Secondly, don't give up my father was a full-born British man but he was born and raised in India came to faith when he was 15 years old and when he finished college he lived in what was called a chumery now a chumery is kind of like a boarding like a a dormitory for guys they used to use those in, in the British army and stuff and as the army left they maintained and that's where where guys would go and they pay rent, but it's, it's kind of a dorm, kind of a lifestyle. And he had a roommate by the name of Malcolm Lamb. And Malcolm was one of these kind of excessive guys who just loved to always go to the country club and go dancing and drinking and hanging out with women that were out there. I mean, my dad would tell the story. He just, he just loved to do that, always dressing up in the nicest clothes and making sure his hair was just perfect. His mustache was curled up, all that kind of stuff, right? And, and, and he would, he would ask my father to say, Hey, Phillips, why don't you come out with me this evening? We will have great fun together, dancing and drinking and meeting girls. And my dad would respond, thank you, Malcolm, for the invite. But I'm going to a Bible study this evening. And Malcolm would respond to, to my dad and he would laugh and he would say, Bible boy, are you afraid to come with me to the, to the, to the club? And my father would say, not at all, country club boy. Are you afraid to come with me to the Bible study? This friendly banter went on for weeks until finally Malcolm said, You know what? You think I'm afraid to go with you to a Bible study? Guess what? I'm going to come with you tonight. Instead of going to the club, I'm going to come with you to the Bible study. So he came. And he sat there in silence, but he had this, this kind of smirk on his face that said, This is a load of nonsense. And the next day, when my father came home from work, he found Malcolm in his room in a terrible state, pacing back and forth in pits of despair. And Malcolm looked at my dad and said, "Phillips, you have to help me. Please help me. I couldn't sleep all night. I couldn't think about the only thing I could think about was the fact that I'm a sinner deserving of death in hell, and I'm afraid to leave this room." And that night, my father walked Malcolm through the gospel. And he was gloriously saved. And my dad would ask Malcolm, would you like to go to the country club tonight? And Malcolm would reply, not tonight, Phillips. We're going to the Bible study. My friends, just get this. Don't give up on that person. When it comes to the gospel, there are no no no-go zones. There are no countries, no kinds of people, no religions or secular ideology into which the gospel cannot penetrate. God calls people out of the darkness with the light of the gospel to experience joy. So go back to work tomorrow with the obnoxious boss and those disinterested coworkers and pray. And remember who is on the throne and how powerful his gospel is. Keep talking to that neighbor, that friend, who is steeped in the darkness of their religion, their social agenda. And remember that it is God who breaks through. And he prepares the heart for the harvest. Keep loving that son or that daughter or that sibling or those parents or that spouse or that cousin who always seems to have a chip on their shoulder about your Christianity. Remember, you can't save them. But God can, if he so chooses. Don't give in. Don't give up. But do give out. Based on the last two, we can put this one in perspective. We don't give in, we don't give up, but we do give out. In other words, we we must orient our thinking to be God's channels to work through as he is at work bringing the spiritually blind and the lame to himself. He does that through us. And so when we seek to live out our lives for Christ, wherever he places us, we do so with joy. Not every one we're going to meet is going to be gloriously saved, but God is going to use us as those vessels to accomplish his purposes. So we must remember to be about authenticating our faith by the way we live, the commitments we hold to, the kindness and the graciousness that we share, and the hope that we demonstrate. In other words, as a famous teacher once said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord, help us today. Although we may not personally experience any kind of persecution that would come close to what so many Christians around this world are experiencing. There certainly is the feeling that it is on the horizon. And Lord, I wonder whether we are prepared for it. I wonder if our answer to it is simply to run away and to abandon our identity with you. For fear, for comfort. When Lord, you call us when we are persecuted, when we are oppressed, to be the very means by which the gospel goes forward. Lord, not not by anger at those who are oppressing us. Not by yelling and screaming with picket signs and all that kind of stuff. But Lord, by testifying of the wonder and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why that's changed us. In the midst of all that persecution, Lord, there may be someone who's listening, who hears, who's watching, whose life will be radically affected. Well, Lord, would there be souls of many that are affected by our faithful testimony? But Lord, we, we don't know what you're doing. And so we trust, Lord, in your sovereign care as you work in the hearts of people, Lord, that our faithfulness would be the means by which you are accomplishing your purposes. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in such a way that we are we are not excuses, Lord, for not following you. We are examples of the wonder and the beauty of what it means to be sinful people saved by grace, living under the, the wonderful strength and hope and joy of the gospel. Help us, Lord, not to not to panic, Lord, over people and ideologies and religions that seem so dark and just feel like we could never penetrate. Lord, we know that you are our great God and Savior. Lord, you saved people out of the darkness. You saved us. Help us, Lord, to, to hold on to that truth and to allow your Holy Spirit to challenge us to live our lives for your glory be asked in your precious name. Amen.